In the middle part of 2020, almost the entire world was looking for a new hobby to occupy this newly found home-based environment. We were faced with a monumental amount of time on our hands that the hectic lives we were living beforehand had never afforded us. It almost became a Saturday Night Live skit, but virtually everyone you knew was making their own sourdough bread. We might not ever know exactly what causes viral sensations to tip off, but if I had to make a guess, this one was an ability to recapture some semblance of control in our own minute way. There's a high degree of care that is involved in creating and making sourdough bread. It reminded me of a story that I had read about a bread maker in San Francisco. Boudin Bakery has trademarked itself as the original San Francisco sourdough, and it is the oldest continually operating business in the city. While that might be a unique enough identification to make them interesting, what I was drawn to was their house yeast bacteria culture that they've maintained since the California Gold Rush. This particular company has kept alive this strain of yeast for nearly 200 years. What we as quarantine bakers understood as starter is historically known as mother. Mother may be a more appropriate term for it. If we were to think about the mother in whiskey, it might actually be something similar to Solera or Backset. Each batch saves a little bit for the next batch, but the mother is much more than that. It essentially inoculates the next set of dough to rise as it should. Sourdough bread was one of those things that had largely disappeared from modern culture, mainly because of the time and requirements to maintain it. When COVID hit, we found ourselves with an abundance of that time and a need to manage and care for some type of thing, something to replace our need to constantly go. You only have to poke around for about five seconds to find at least a hundred different ways to start your sourdough culture. Over the last few weeks, I've talked about foundational blocks to the whiskey making process and how they impact the overall outcome of the final product. As you can tell, today is about yeast. Yeast is one of those things that gets a highlight at every major distillery you visit. Most distilleries have their own yeast strain that they've cared for for years. There's even distillers that have captured their yeast from the DNA of a dead yeast strain from a family lineage. Limestone Branch, with the help of Pat Heist, were able to capture a dead yeast strain and revive it to be used in future distillation methods. There's several different categories of commercial yeast available to the modern distiller. There's distiller's yeast, brewer's yeast, wine yeast, and champagne yeast. Maybe it's important to understand the role yeast plays in distillation before we go too much farther. I'm just going to warn you, the next little bit might get a little bit nerdy. While there are several different categorizations of yeast, it's more accurate to say that there are an infinite number of different species of yeast, and each species will convert sugar to alcohol in a slightly different way. When yeast is introduced to the mash, there's already a sort of ecosystem forming in the liquid, but the yeast has brought in to build some structure. It eats sugar and produces alcohol, among other things. During that process, it can create flavors that are floral, fruity, or even herbal. Distillers will select their yeast specifically to create these types of flavor profiles. Several distilleries give you the opportunity to see what's actually happening with open-top fermenters. There's bubbles rising to the top of the tank, and that's thanks in part to carbon dioxide, but it's also giving off some heat. This conversion is, is slightly exothermic. But what I want to focus on today isn't just yeast, but wild yeast. Most of the sourdough that was being made in homes around the world was doing just that. We were creating an environment that would attract yeast, then capturing it, caring for it, and continuing its propagation indefinitely. Exactly what Boudin has been doing, and exactly what some distillers are doing today. 
Capturing wild yeast used to be commonplace in the distilling industry, but it has largely gone by the wayside as the need to be able to reproduce the same thing over and over again increases. If you're one of those home bakers, you've experienced how to capture wild yeast for baking purposes, and it isn't significantly different from capturing wild yeast for distillation. Historic distillers were taught, usually by a family member or some other mentor, how to make a yeast mash. The sole purpose of this is to capture and make yeast so its properties were entirely different than that of the whiskey mash. Then it becomes a waiting game, as you are forced to simply observe if you created the right environment to capture yeast. Initially, they'll taste the smell along the way of the fermentation to see if the yeast capture is producing the things that they were looking for. Once they found what they wanted, they would cool it and put it in a yeast jug to keep it alive until they were ready to ferment a whiskey mash. Given the inherent inefficiency of this process, why wouldn't modern distillers just buy known yeast so that they could get to the distilling process faster? Most of them do just that. The brands for today's episode have found unique reasons to want to buck that trend. Welcome to the Embellish Podcast, where we like to talk about stories. We like to explore how embellishment makes a story better. How it allows us to connect more deeply with both the person telling the story and the subject of the story. Together, we will explore people, products, and places that have a story to tell. We'll navigate through the truth, half-truths, and outright lies and decide if truthiness even matters. I would kick myself if I started this conversation around wild yeast and didn't start with Alan Bishop and the Spirits of French Lick. This team in Indiana has been making waves in the craft industry, and I use that term loosely for the last few years. Their bottles are gaining notoriety all over the country, and it's largely due to the intentional nature of how they want to build their whiskey brand. The distillery was born out of an already existing winery. French Lick Winery has been around since the mid-90s, and they've been growing since then. The winery was a family-owned and operated facility that, after many years of growth, decided it was time to stake a claim in the Indiana distilling marketplace. What better way to begin a distilling operation than to hire someone who has a deep investment into what many are calling the terroir in the whiskey industry, as well as some degree of personal experience in distilling in southern Indiana? If you want an identity for your brand, it doesn't seem like a bad idea to build it on your master distiller. In preparation for this episode, I've listened to at least a dozen episodes of Distiller's Talk, which features Alan's love for distilling, conversations with amazing personalities, and his want to revive the moniker of Indiana's Black Forest. I won't spend too much time on Alan because he's not the central theme, but that might be an idea for a future episode. Alan championed an idea to attempt to capture yeast in Indiana from historic distillation sites with the hopes of reviving some yeast that could have been used to make Indiana whiskey in the past. Bishop was met with a degree of success at the site of Daisy Spring Distillery, McCoy and Company Distillery, as well as the location of the old Clifty Distillery. These three yeast strains are currently thought to be unique to the southern Indiana region. Once he's captured the yeast, what is he going to do with it? Well, I assume you would make some whiskey, and that's what the spirit of French Lake is doing. They've used these three strains to create what they are calling targeted single barrels. While the likes of Four Roses and Bullet are using yeast in unique ways to target single barrels for sale, there's a degree of work and intentionality that went into crafting these specific offerings that seems very alluring to me. While these wild yeast whiskies aren't yet 
available, you can spend a few bucks on French Lick's website to ensure that these barrels born in 2020 can make it to 2024 or beyond for all of us to try out. It's not a very hard transition to swap to the next brand for the Wild Yeast episode of this podcast. I mentioned another podcast, Distiller's Talk, that Alan Bishop co-hosts a few minutes ago. If you only have a chance to listen to a couple of episodes they've put out, make sure you put at the top of your list ones featuring Todd Leopold from Leopold Brothers Spirits in Denver, Colorado. Colorado, for most bourbon fans, has largely been an afterthought to the major market consumer. Luckily, there's a bevy of brands breaking out in the western states, and this distillery is certainly one of them. Leopold Brothers Spirits makes a little bit of everything. The roots of the distilling operation is found in beer, but once the brothers relocated to Denver from Michigan, they began to focus solely on distilling. They house a malting floor, a kiln. Todd's focus is on quality and process, but today's focus is yeast, and we'll shift to talking about that part. The distillery itself was designed with wild fermentation in mind. They considered window placement and how wind would impact the introduction of wild yeast into the open fermentation tanks. They used commercial yeasts and let it run its course in the tanks. Once it's spent, which should be somewhere around 72 hours, they leave it open hoping to capture a secondary yeast strain from the ambient air, creating a biome including bacteria that came in on the grain, some bacteria that was already living in the wood fermentation vessels, and this wild yeast. If you've ever been to Maker's Mark, you've seen these types of vessels. The idea that they are creating a biome makes it inherently more interesting. They've essentially created an atmosphere that supports a wide range of bacterial life forms, one that works together to create oils and flavors and other enhancing elements that will make it through the distillation process. Leopold's efforts are an attempt to create their own house flavor, something that they'll be able to consistently bottle. What he's found is that it produces an ester that creates an orange marmalade note, that is detectable across all of his whiskeys. What it also invites is inconsistent results. But if you're trying to make something new and unique, isn't that the type of outcome you are actually after? Letting this natural occurring phenomena take control and help drive you to a final product. Jumping back to capturing wild yeast in what might be considered remote locations, we had our final offering of the episode. This particular brand brings around the question of how can one truly be grain-to-glass offerings if they are getting their yeast in bulk from somewhere else. If you are interested in being a locavore, can you in good conscience consume whiskey that uses any commercial ingredients? To some degree, it's unavoidable to have to use something that isn't local, but if you can find a way to capture your local yeast and create a sense of terroir, wouldn't it be prudent to include it in your distillation process? In Fort Worth, Texas, you'll find Firestone and Robertson Distilling Company. Firestone and Robertson places a huge emphasis on this grain-to-glass movement and doing things maybe the hard way. On the cap, you'll find a round punch of leather that has been historically made of repurposed boots. Currently, they are buying new leather, but they are using the offcuts from saddle and boot makers. When it comes to yeast, it's no different. When Rob Arnold began as the head distiller, he went on a wild yeast hunt. His hope was to find a unique strain of Texas yeast much similar to what Alan Bishop would do some years later. Taking it a step further to put Texas's signature on the spirit even more, they were able to isolate a yeast strain that is entirely indigenous to the state of Texas on a pecan. Is it pecan or pecan? Not really sure, but it's also the state tree. Does it actually make this whiskey unique? Most of the commercially available strains of yeast come from Europe. The distillery has used some of these commercial yeasts in the past, 
on the exact same mash bill, and once they adopted this new yeast strain, they found new flavors. Things like clove, cinnamon, and dark fruits. Firestone and Roberts feels that they have found the terroir of the state of Texas in their whiskey. This effort to hunt, capture, and tame wild yeast adds a new facet to the concept of slow food culture. The process is painstaking and can often result in yeast that is completely useless to the fermentation and distillation of a worthy spirit. Caring for yeast is like having a pet. In some fashions, it's lower maintenance than some pets, but significantly higher than others. Yeast can be handed down from generation to generation, so it becomes a long-lived biological creature that is a part of your identity. It's fickle because extreme temperatures can cause it to die or go dormant. Not feeding it appropriately can result in being overwhelmed and dying. It's almost like having a mogwai. If you don't feed it at the right time or you get it too much water, you end up with disastrous results. It multiplies readily and can really put some gremlins in your system if it's mistreated. Why did we as humanity get so attached to effectively capturing our own yeast and raising it as one of our own? Earlier I said maybe it was to put some degree of order and control into our daily lives, but maybe that's not quite it. Maybe it was an attempt to recapture old ways, to slow ourselves down and become intentionally reacquainted with our ancestors, people who regularly tamed this wild bacteria for their own benefits, fermenting foods for preservation, capturing yeast for bread and whiskey, using something that was borderline alchemy to enhance their day-to-day -day life. Aside from a handful of companies, there is very little intentional attention paid to yeast. Companies like Four Roses focus on the impacts of yeast on the bourbon, but the distilleries I've mentioned today focus on the impacts of yeast on bourbon and the impacts of the environment around the yeast on the yeast. How can we try to capture the essence of our own flavor of an area? Whether it be trying to capture historical yeasts from old distillation sites, effectively recreating a yeast that was wild, then caught, then wild again like Alan Bishop over at French Lick Spirits? Or maybe it's letting nature bring you the yeast of the environment that may vary from batch to batch using secondary fermentation with wind-swept Colorado yeast at Leopold Brothers. Or maybe it's going out and intentionally finding the taste of a state and discovering it on the fruit of the state tree like the people over at Firestone and Robertson Distilling. This focus on a foundational aspect of the spirit in the bottle is something worthy of our support. Thanks for listening to the Embellish Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe. Check out our website at embellishpod.com and follow us on social media at Instagram and Twitter to keep up with what we have going on. If you have an idea about a story we should talk about, send it to us at embellishpod at gmail.com. And remember, whether famous or infamous, a good story mixed with a touch of embellishment makes the food you ate, the drink you drank, and the places you visited just a little more memorable. Yeah.